All right. Thank you, guys. Good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here in person and joining us uh, online. We hope that this will be a very uplifting and challenging worship experience for, for all of us, for others. Perhaps it's coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and today is the day you make that determination uh, to follow after him and begin this lifelong journey of what it is to be a disciple and follower of Jesus. And uh, just piggybacking on the theme of what he's done, we uh, hope that you will join us tonight in Lowry Hall at six o'clock for uh, communion, the Lord's Supper around the table. We join around tables. It really is a, an enactment of that very powerful biblical metaphor of family and what it is to be family and uh, all the, the responsibilities and obligations that, that go with that, learning to endure together the good, the bad, the highs and the lows and modeling for our world what it is to be committed to a family and uh, that sense of kinship that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ that is so prevalent in Scripture. I want us to open our Bibles this morning to Second uh, Peter in chapter 1. This probably doesn't need to be said, but sometimes we need a, a reminder. I, I would hope that we realize that every letter, uh, epistle uh, that was penned by the biblical writers, those were written for a reason. Uh, there was some issue that had come up in the life of those, uh, that young community of believers. Uh, there was something that was threatening to uh, their livelihood. There was something that was threatening to their growth and their maturity as followers of, of Jesus Christ. And so the biblical writers, they would write these letters to these young congregations, these congregations of young believers uh, to, to offer reproof, correction, guidance, and instruction so that they might uh, avoid uh, the pitfalls that were seeking to ensnare them. Now, each of these congregations to whom these epistles are, are being written written. Uh, they, all of them, were, were enduring a time of, of, of persecution. Uh, many of them uh, were impoverished, and they were being oppressed by the wealthy, those in power within their society. And you have to appreciate where these, these believers were, these new believers. They, they were an unprecedented people. They were an unprecedented people and presence in precedented times. Life was just hard back then. Our situation is somewhat different in that we are a precedented people. We, we uh, have a long established history. We are a precedented people, but we are living in unprecedented times, at least in the past 100 years. We have not seen anything like we have experienced the past 18 months in this country. And oftentimes when we are forced to endure times such as this or other seasons in life, uh, what happens is that our immaturity can be exposed. The, the immaturity of our faith uh, can be exposed. It can be challenged. And there's negative emotions that come to the surface that have never been entertained before that you've never had to struggle with. Many are finding themselves in this season of life. Uh, they're depressed. Uh, they're spiritually depressed. They are discouraged, even to the point for some of, of abandoning and walking away from their faith, going back to the lifestyle from which they were delivered, the life from which they were delivered. Now, if that describes you, I'm not, I'm not saying that to shame you, to make you feel guilty. Really, I want you to know that you're in good company because it was, it was to those kind of people that Peter was writing his second letter. 
These were a people that were depressed, spiritually depressed. These were a people that, that were discouraged to a degree that, that they're at a point where many of them are considering walking away from their faith completely and just going back to the former life from which they were, were saved. And you and I are in a time where many find themselves in that same kind of thinking where those kinds of negative, emotional, intrusive thoughts have come to mind. Data from universities across this country, uh, many, within, uh, many within university administration, are calling this a time of, of a mental health tsunami. Universities reporting a 70% uptick in the number of students asking and requesting appointments with mental health professionals. There's a great many that are struggling with negative, overwhelming emotions. Now, what I want to do this morning, because Peter is addressing those kind of people as well, addressing those kinds of negative thoughts, emotions, spiritual depression, what I want us to do is, is I want to take this, this passage, these, these verses, verses 4 through 11, and I, and I want us to look at them from a clinical diagnostic perspective. And the reason I'm doing that in the outline I'm going to follow this morning, if you, uh, and, and doc, physicians hate to hear this, but, you know, we all do it, I think. You know, whenever we feel bad, what do we do? We get on the internet and we, we start Googling all of our symptoms that we're having, you know, trying to figure out what this is. And uh, inevitably, uh, one of the options that always comes up, say, near the top, uh, when you Google your symptoms, what you're dealing with, it, it, uh, one of the options is always mayoclinic.org. That's always my go-to page, mayoclinic.org. And I'll go in there, and I've noticed that there's a format on their page that they, that they follow. They begin with the symptoms, they begin with, and then that's followed by, by the cause, and then they have the treatment and then they have the prognosis. And I thought borrowing from Peter, what, uh, what I want to do is I want to follow that same format. I want to follow that same look and figure out how we deal with spiritual depression when it arises in this life. Well, let's just begin with the symptoms. Now, you'll notice that what Peter does, what he, what he describes, the spiritual, the spiritual depression that Peter is describing, you have to pay close attention to what is said here in verses 8 through 10 because he identifies their symptoms in a very indirect way. Now, notice how he does this beginning in, in verse 8. He says, for if these qualities are yours, now the qualities he's referring to or the things that he's listed, these qualities up in uh, verse 5, 6, and, and 7, all of these qualities that, that we are to be diligently pursuing as followers of Christ. But he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, so apparently what he's saying is that these qualities are not yours. These are things that are not being borne out in your life. This is not something that you are continually seeking. They do not they do not make you useless or unproductive in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, when I'm evaluating what I'm hearing, what Peter says, when I'm, what I'm hearing from, from correspondence, what I'm seeing in your life, this, the symptomatic manifestations of your spiritual depression is, is, that, is that all of these things are absent. 
in your life. That you're not increasing in these qualities that are to be evident in your life at this point. You've actually become useless and unproductive. You're lacking the knowledge that you ought to have at this point in your faith journey. Then in verse 8, he says, or verse 9 rather, he says, for the one who lacks these qualities, implication again being that you are lacking in these qualities, for the one who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. Having forgotten his purification from from former sins, you're allowing your present tense circumstances to overwhelm you because you're not seeking after diligently these qualities. It's made you short-sighted. All you're seeing is a child, through your childish perception, your infantile adolescence in the life of faith, all you're seeing is your present tense circumstances. You're short-sighted, you're blind, lacking the knowledge that, that you ought to have. Therefore, He says in in verse 10, therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choice of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. The reason you're stumbling, in other words, the reason I'm seeing and hearing word about your stumbling and falling away from the life of faith is you haven't been diligent in practicing these things. So what Paul is doing, he's diagnosing their, 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 their problem there. He's trying to offer correction. Paul is genuinely concerned about, about their spiritual well-being. And so Paul's trying to come alongside them as, as a loving mentor, as a loving shepherd. And he said, you know, I'm trying to offer correction and reproof from, from, your, law, from your wrongful thinking, which has brought about patterns in life that are not consistent to the life to which you are called. Well, let's move from the symptoms. Doesn't do any good to just know what the symptoms are if you can't get to the root of the problem. So let's, let's look at the, at the causes. Now, I want to call our attention to verses 5 and 10 because he uses a word here, the same word twice. He says, Now, for this reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply, and he goes on and lists all of these qualities. But listen to that phrase again, applying all diligence. Make every effort, your translation may say. It's another way of translating that. Apply all for this very reason, for the well-being of your life, for the well-being of your eternal destiny, for the well-being of your witness, your high calling. Apply all diligence. Make every effort. Uses the same word in verse 10. Actually, it's a different word translated the same as diligent, but other implications. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choice of you. This word that is translated as as diligent is a word that means zeal, have, have some zeal, have some enthusiasm about this life to which you are called. You need to be diligent. You need to make every effort to make sure that, that, that these qualities are being manifested, that these are the things that you're pursuing in your life. 
Well, you know what the real issue is when I read those words diligent. When diligence is the issue and it's listed twice that he would list it twice that Peter would allude to it twice. I mean, this is this is really the heart of the issue. Make every effort. An attitude of zeal, enthusiasm, passion. It means the real cause. And man, we don't want to hear this. The real cause for your spiritual depression, what you're dealing with, it's a lack of discipline. That's all it is. It's a lack of discipline. Now, it raises the question, and we're going to, going to go back to this. Why, why, why would there be a lack of, of discipline? Why would these that are called by Christ, why would they be lacking in discipline? And remember, he's writing to Christians. He, he wouldn't be writing otherwise. But he's writing to Christians that should be further along in their faith journey who are being seduced to go back when they shouldn't be. That if you were adequately growing, this, this would not be an issue for you. So why are these lacking in discipline? Well, a couple of reasons I see here, if we allude to to verse 5 and verse 10 again, the first one is theological. They're lazy because they lack theological understanding. Um, In other words, they have, and and specifically, they they have a very poor theology of, of salvation, what is called soteriology, the study of salvation. They have a very poor understanding of the life of salvation to which they or call. Now he says, make every effort. Make sure these things are applied to your life. Now listen, Peter is not holding forth a salvation by works. That's not all, that, that's not it at all. But a salvation that is real, a salvation that is saving is a salvation that works. It manifests itself. That's why Paul and Peter both say to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is, make it manifest, make it obvious. Let people see that this is the external pursuit of your life. What you have experienced internally, let the world see your witness that this is something that you're trying to manifest outwardly. Make every effort. That's why James would say faith without works is dead. And so when he says add this to it, he's saying round out your salvation with these things. Let these things be the pursuit of your life because you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. But these have a faulty understanding of the salvation. It's not unlike many in the West who have a punctiliar view of salvation instead of a linear view of salvation. That is those who talk about salvation in terms of a point in time. Never mind that it's had no impact upon their life. It's had no transforming impact upon their life whatsoever. It doesn't inform any facet of their life. But you talk to them about matters of faith, and this is prevalent in the Western church. They will always point back to some point in time, punctiliar salvation. When it really has, that has no biblical model whatsoever. That is something we've created in the West to appease our conscience. Because salvation in the New Testament 
is something that is linear in fashion. Yeah, it has a point in time that begins, but that work is so transform transformational. If that was real, if that was genuine, if that was truly about following after Christ Jesus, that means you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. That means your priority and your passion is to grow in the fullness of Christ. That means that you have died to self. As Paul describes it in chapter 2 and verse 20 of Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Am I dying to self daily? That's why the Christian faith is having all the more challenge in this day and time to really get a foothold in people's lives, a, a culture and a society that is preoccupied with self. And you listen to the vast majority of, of people who, who talk about their unhappiness, the, you know, their own personal preferences, and it's always me and my preferences, my wants, my desires, when, when really all that says, when I get into that me mode, means I haven't sufficiently died yet. means I'm not yet as dead as I should be. That I still need to be dying to self on a daily basis so that the fullness of Christ might be made manifest in my life. If I rightly understand my salvation from a biblical perspective, then I understand that this is a linear work in progress. My satisfaction does not rest upon some point in time that had no impact upon my life, but my and the assurance of my salvation is in my present tense reality of seeking to grow in the fullness of Christ, dying daily to self, knowing that this is a linear work that God is accomplishing in me that will be fulfilled, completed, consummated at the coming of the Christ, the final coming of Christ, the return of Christ, the consummation of the age, and the final judgment of man. And yet some are undisciplined because they have a wrong understanding of salvation. They've embraced in this culture, in our Western society, a kind of what, what is called antinomianism in theological circles. And a very simplified version of antinomianism is that is this understanding that, that as long as I believe the truth, as long as I believe, as long as I confess and acknowledge my belief in a certain set of precepts, then I can live as I please. And there's many that have that view in the Western church, that as long as I believe, as long as I offer intellectual assent to the truth, that I can live however I want. Which means you haven't really died to self. When your primary concern is your own self expression doing what you want to do under the supposed umbrella of Christ's lordship in our lives. The other issue why I think there is a lack of discipline, not just because of a, a theological issue, but also it's a psychological issue as well. Because here in, in verses 5 and 10, if we rightly understand these words, diligence and diligent as they are used, the first use has to do with making every effort. Effort is about the mind, it's not physicality. I, started, I, I was thinking at some point as I was 
reading these verses, praying through these verses, my first intuitive thought about this kind of laziness that has emerged from these pages is that it was a physical issue, but it's not a physical issue. These are individuals fully capable, fully equipped through the power of the Spirit to be pursuing the life that they ought to pursue. And so when Paul says to be diligent, when he's talking in verse 5 about making every effort, that's a that's an act of the mind. That's willfulness. That's intentionality. That's deliberateness. That's a calculated thought. That's intentional. That's being strategic about how I'm going to use my time and my energy and my, and my resources. Same thing with the use of diligent there in verse 10. Be all the more diligent. You have zeal. Be zealous for the things of God. Be enthusiastic for the things of God. In church, listen, this is, this is where this, this becomes an exercise of your faith. That's why I'm saying it's a, this lack of discipline is very much a psychological issue because it's a determination of your mind. What are you going to be zealous for? What are you going to be passionate for, enthusiastic for? This is a very real battle between principalities and powers that we are dealing with. And the principalities of pow- and powers of this world with which we are battling and engage, these are, these are powers and principalities that care nothing about you. All they want to see is your life destroyed. They want to destroy your life. They want to destroy your witness. They want you to be ineffectual as a witness. And they want to keep you off the path that leads to eternal life. And the proof that this very issue is one of battling principalities and powers is that we have no difficulty having enthusiasm and zeal and diligence for everything else in life. Did you go to the game yesterday? There was no lack of zeal and enthusiasm there. No lack of zeal and enthusiasm for mindlessly scrolling through social media for hours. There's no lack of zeal and enthusiasm for getting online playing video games for hours upon hours and hours. It seems where there is a lack of zeal and diligence when it comes to things that really do matter. When it comes to the eternal when it comes to those things that contribute to the, to the fullness of Christ in us being realized. But we make excuses, we procrastinate, oh, I just want to, if I'm going to read my Bible and pray, I, wanna, I want to honor the Lord and do it with a large block of time. We don't get large blocks of time. We get 10 minutes here, we get 15 minutes here. It's about how are you going to use the windows of opportunity that present themselves in the course of a day? What really matters? Well, it's necessary to move on to a plan of treatment. And interesting, the plan of treatment is driven by the causes. And so the first treatment, the first plan of treatment, and I'm going I'm to give you a couple of things here for your treatment plan in mind. The first thing that is necessary in the treatment of this spiritual depression that is caused by a lack of discipline, the first thing that is necessary is diligence. 
We saw that it was lacking, and so the treatment is, is to be more diligent. Now, notice again here in verse 5, now for this reason also applying all diligent, that is we need to continue being diligent in our seeking as the writer of, of Hebrews would say in chapter 11 and verse 6, or, or even as Jesus said, I'm a, I must work the works of him who sent me. It's that same kind of diligence. I must work the works of him who called me. For we must work while it is day, for the night cometh when no man shall work. John's Gospel, chapter 9, and verse 4. It means I'm going to be diligent to these things that, that are being described. This is going to be my priority. Now, I don't know about you, but things I leave to chance just don't get done. It's human nature. We all say it. I'm just going to wait till a better chance. I'm going to wait till, I, I'm going to wait till a better time. I'm going to wait till I have, a, I have a better opportunity, only to find out that was the only time and ever, only opportunity I ever had. So it's about priority. It's about diligence. It means all of my effort, the best of who I am, the very best of what I am, my time, my energy and resources is going to be given to this growth of my faith. Everything else is incidental in life. Everything else just wants to pull away from this very thing about which we are to be diligent. Now, second part of this treatment plan, that which begins with just a commitment to being diligent to the task, is we each one have to feed our faith. That's what he's talking about here in verse 5 when he talks about applying, adding, adding to, not faith plus something else equals salvation. But he's saying that, that as a child of God, you, you need to feed your faith. We can't have this kind of, as I mentioned earlier, we can't have this kind of magical, mystical view of, of, of salvation, understanding of salvation, that, that as long as I just believe and give intellectual assent to the truth, that everything else that is supposed to be evident in my life will just automatically happen as a child of God. That's just not reality. And so I've, I've got to be deliberate, intentional in adding and supplying these things to my life. He says there in your face, supply moral, excellent virtue may be the translation that you have. Supply moral excellence. It means moral energy. That means in my faith, I want to go out into this world to which I'm called where my feet are and I want to hold high the bar of Christ Jesus. I don't want to lower the bar. In the living of my life, the things that I stand for, I want to put forth a moral energy holding high the things of God, the standard of Christ Jesus that he has set before us, not compromising, not accommodating and lowering the bar to make people happy. In a world of least common denominators, as a follower of Christ, I want to be a numerator that lives my life above the line. I don't want to be vulnerable to the proverbial crab trap where the people who just settle for the least common denominator in life are constantly reaching up and grabbing those and pulling down those who are seeking to hold high the bar. Moral energy. And in your moral excellence, 
knowledge. Now, this isn't knowledge for knowledge's sake. The word that is used here, it's, it's a kind of practical knowledge. It's, it's an experiential knowledge. That as you are seeking to live the life of faith, not just offer intellectual assent to, a, to some beliefs, but, but when you are seeking to live the faith, this experiential knowledge is going to grow. When you're immersing yourself into the study of God's Word, a life of prayer and worship, participation in the life and ministries of the church, what you're going to notice is a growth of experiential knowledge. And it's an unceasing process that, that, that Bible verses that, that you thought you understood 20, 30 years ago when you first read them, now then in your 40s, 50s, 60s, those Bible verses because of experiential knowledge, they are alive and they have a vividness that you simply could not see and experience back here at this season in your life. But you have to pursue it diligently. It doesn't happen with a random approach to the life of faith. When all you do is just approach things randomly, you get random results. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal written by a mathematics professor, and I appreciated what she said. She was saying that, that mathematics is, is never mastered, the, the, the more difficult concepts are, are never mastered just because you do homework. That you will never really master the concepts and the theories of mathematics if you're just satisfied doing the homework, setting it aside and say, okay, I've got that done, what's next? Her emphasis was is that once you've done the homework, you have to keep doing problems again and again and again and again and again if you're really going to master the concepts. And in the life of faith, it is no less true. We cannot be content and satisfied just offering profession of faith to some belief set. Nor can we be satisfied because I read my Bible this morning and I can mark it off my spiritual punch list. I said a token prayer. I can mark it off my, my, my spiritual punch list and be satisfied. But it's only as we seek to live our faith, to be the presence of Christ in real time, in front of real people, in real places, that this experiential knowledge grows. And in your knowledge... Verse 6, self-control. Interesting, interestingly, the same word is used over in Galatians, listed among the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. That means the Spirit will prompt you. That means you're in control of choices and decisions and determinations for your life. The Spirit will prompt you. This is part of the fruit of the Spirit. But it's up to you to make choices and determinations about your time, energy, resources. How often do we catch ourselves saying when we're overwhelmed by life and someone questions you and asks you about, well, maybe, that's, maybe you just need to look at your priorities. Well, I had no control over that. No, you really did. And you really do. And in your self-control, perseverance, that's patience, patient endurance. Knowing that my present challenges and difficulties, this, this is not the end of the narrative. Patience and endurance and perseverance, it keeps leaning forward with the anticipation and the knowledge and the faith and the trust that there is more to this story that God 
is riding. And in your perseverance, godliness, that means an overwhelming concern with your relationship with the Father. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness, this is the horizontal application of our godliness, brotherly kindness. It is our kinship with one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. It transcends biology and blood. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and your brotherly kindness, love. How we relate, charity is some of your translations. How we relate to others outside, how they see us. These are challenging words, aren't they? These are words that stretch us. These, words that, these are words that take us from our place of contentment and challenge us and stretch us. Well, Bobby, if it's challenging, what's the prognosis? Well, as challenging as these words may be, the prognosis is very encouraging. The words of Peter are very encouraging. Because throughout this, he reminds us of what we have received as, as, as followers of, of Christ. Notice verse 3, we have received, we have received resources. We're not left on our own. You and I have received resources and a calling for his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. He gives to us promises in a sense of identity. Verse four, through these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world on account of lust. He offers to us a sense of assurance. We have received an assurance. Notice in verse 10, therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choice of you. Listen, don't be discouraged, be encouraged. You and I, we are his choice. I know you're going through a time of hardship and difficulty, he said, but you're God's choice. He has plans and purposes for you far beyond these present circumstances. These, these things will pass. Persevere. And then he reminds us that we have received a destiny. In verse 11, for in this way, the entrance for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Listen, on your hardest day, church, you're chosen. You need to cling to that. You need to rest in that. You need to be mindful of that. When your mind is trying to tell you something that is untrue, when your mind is, is being deceived, you cling to this. You are chosen. And you are a child of destiny. G.K. Chesterton said it best in his book, What's Wrong with the World? He said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. What about you? Have you really tried it? 
I'm not just talking about giving it lip service, just confessing. I'm talking about, have you really tried it? Because the only ones that drift away, according to Peter, those are the ones that haven't really tried it because those who really try it, it proves itself out. We do not stumble. So it's only as you try it, it's only as you embrace it, as you practice it, that we find deliverance from our spiritual depression. Father, I pray that our spirits would be lifted, that in our times of struggle, we would make our touchstone, the cornerstone of truth, that it would be our identity in Christ Jesus. That regardless of what our minds might be saying to us, that, Father, we would find our security and our identity in you. That we would believe and trust in you to such a degree that, that we would diligently make every effort with every kind of zeal and enthusiasm pursue the qualities that you would desire to be made evident in our lives. And that by seeking to be this kind of witness to the world, we find deliverance from the inside of our own head. That we would no longer be preoccupied with self, that we would be dead to self. And that the fullness of Christ would be made, be made known through us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.